I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, you guys, what are the odds that Rudy Giuliani butt dials the U.S. attorney today and incriminates himself? Pretty high. Not zero, which is the most important thing. Yeah, or a, a reporter for a prominent New York publication, or he'll just go on TV and do it himself. Yeah, yeah I, I think the real question is, what are the odds that Rudy Giuliani is on Tucker Carlson's show tonight? Oh, seems oh, high. Very high. Seems yeah. the force is strong. Somewhere right now, there is an attorney <laughs> that is Rudy Giuliani's attorney that s- surveyed the lay of the landscape and thought, yeah, I'll do that job. That seems fun. That seems manageable. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Oops, Rudy Did It Again edition. (laughs) Excellent. Oh, Rudy. Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. You know, it was like such, it was feeling like a slow news day and like things were getting back to normal. And then Rudy Giuliani, it's just like, you know, it's like a cocaine rush, just like back into the news stream, baby. Or is it like the, the zombie at the end of the horror movie who's just not really dead? <laughs> they forgot to they forgot to take off his head. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually thinking this is pretty good for Rudy. Uh-huh. His pants are on. Oh. There's yeah. no very young woman in a hotel room. Yeah. That we know him. of. That, that we know of. It is he is not in the parking lot giving a press conference in the parking lot of a, a, landscaping, a, a company. landscaping company with a yet. porn store next door. And a crematorium, uh, yet. Yeah. This is a pretty good day. All that's happened <laughs> is a search warrant executed against him. Rudy, you're doing so much better at this. Oh, my God. Amazing. Wow. Well, we're going to talk about that. Uh, it is a it is a beautiful day in the remote jungle studios with my friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi, Shane. It's warm in Washington. It's beautiful. It's like that one week before it gets too hot. Yeah. It's going to go down a little bit and then come back up again. We're we're liking this weather. It's been been a very nice, nice spring Mm -hmm. in Washington. On the podcast this week, uh, federal investigators searched the aforementioned Rudy Giuliani's New York apartment in an escalation of a criminal investigation into the former president's lawyer. Not clear if he's the former president's former lawyer or if he still is the lawyer. That's a good question. COVID-19 ravages India with a record-breaking number of daily infections reported and the Biden administration pledges assistance. And activists are urging police to stop using phone hacking technologies as an interesting feud develops between uh, two tech companies. We'll get to that at the end. Um, Let us start with Mr. Rudy Giuliani. I'm just going to read from the New York Times or breaking news report on this. The federal authorities who have served a search warrant on his Upper East Side apartment and reportedly seized some of his electronic devices um, have been largely focused on whether Mr. Giuliani illegally lobbied the Trump administration in 2019 on behalf of Ukrainian officials and oligarchs who at the same time were helping Mr. Giuliani search for dirt on Mr. Trump's political rivals, including President 
Biden. So, Ben, all right, get us started here. Take us back in time. Remind us what authorities are investigating. And as we unpack this, let's also talk about why this is being executed now. Right. So we've never been entirely sure what Rudy Giuliani is suspected of, but it appears to be connected to the investigation of Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman. Lev and Igor. Yeah. Remember them? The Laurel and Hardy. The Laurel. This almost needs like (laughs) a like previously on LaFerre Roos season one, two, three, six. Yeah. Uh, They were, you will recall, accused of a a kind of fraud scheme involving Ukrainian money and a oligarch and an effort to get Trump reelected and scatter misinformation about Joe Biden. And Rudy was clearly uh, playing ball with them. Uh, There was also a a separate question about whether he was, uh, you know, in violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And there was this contract that he was supposed to sign for some hundreds of thousands of dollars that was negotiated, but never signed, all involving foreign money. And so, you know, precisely what the criminal conduct that they're investigating is, is not entirely clear. There's charges against both Fruman and Parnas. It's not clear what the exact charges against Rudy would be. The investigation hit something of a rut last year when the Southern District of New York prosecutors uh, wanted to uh, execute a warrant against Rudy. And that was blocked by political higher-ups. There are a complicated set of Justice Department procedures that get invoked anytime you are contemplating a search warrant against a lawyer in his capacity as a lawyer. Uh, So there's a partially legitimate reason for that that would require consultation with Maine Justice. But it is quite clear that the Trump administration took a different view, a more restrictive view of this particular proposal than uh, Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco now have. And so it was slow rolled or prevented during the Trump administration appears to be going forward now. I will just say one more thing, which is, you know, the normal standard for a warrant is that the probable cause of ongoing criminal activity or probable cause of evidence of a crime when you're talking about a lawyer in his capacity as a lawyer, the uh, standard is functionally significantly higher than that. So I do think we should assume that Rudy Giuliani is in a world of hurt right now. Tammy. So Rudy Giuliani may indeed be in a world of hurt. And that begs the question, do we care anymore? I mean, You know, maybe Giuliani was trying to enrich himself or aggrandize himself. Maybe he was trying to help President Trump do something corrupt with respect to the 2020 election. Um, Does it matter now, I think, is the question some people may be asking themselves. And at least for me, it's less about Rudy facing justice in and of itself, although obviously if he committed crimes, he should be held accountable. But what I'm interested in here is two things. Number one is how this warrant got freed up and what was going on before. Let's remember that there was this very tense, but also very opaque 
um, standoff between the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York and the Justice Department in the waning days of the Trump administration, an attempt to fire the head U.S. attorney there. And we didn't know exactly which investigation was at issue. Was it about this warrant? You know, just what was Bill Barr willing to do as attorney general in order to try and protect the president or protect the president's friends from being investigated for crimes? So that's one question I think we as Americans deserve an answer to. The other one, of course, is what exactly was going on with this idea of trading favors from the administration for political dirt, you know, that might hurt the Biden campaign. Americans deserve to know exactly how involved the White House and the president himself was in all of that. So to the extent that investigating Rudy Giuliani can shed light on those two things, I am glad for it. As for Rudy Giuliani as an individual, I, you know, that sort of retribution that I know, you know, is making some people happy today, that doesn't matter to me as much. Ben, do you think that the Biden administration needs to worry about the political optics of this? I mean, Rudy Giuliani, when he speaks, which I presume he will, or when Trump decides to issue a press release since he doesn't tweet anymore, you know, they're going to say this is the Biden administration out to get President Trump and his attorney. I mean, that that's how they will portray this. Um, you know, never mind the fact that this was churning in the previous administration. But how concerning should the political optics of this be? I think it depends what the evidence is, honestly. So I, I think executing a search warrant in and of itself does not have that much optics. It doesn't involve the public presentation of evidence. It doesn't involve the making of a public allegation. It involves, in this case, a New York Times story, and there'll be a bunch of follow-up punditry on what it means. Now, should the post has matched it, by the way, as we're talking, but yeah, keep going. So I think in the longer term, if you imagine that there is an indictment of Rudy Giuliani, the question will be does that indictment stand on its own two legs? And in in two discrete senses, one is, does the evidence support it? I.e., can they prove beyond a reasonable doubt the set of allegations they're making? But the second is, when somebody reads the indictment, do they say, this is piddly stuff that really smells like a, you know, one administration going after another, Or do they read the indictment and say, holy shit, Rudy Giuliani did that? And I think if if you're in the latter land with an indictment and you can honestly say, as they can here, that this is an investigation that began under the previous administration, uh, then I think the optics aren't that bad, honestly. If you can't say that and, you know, people read this, read the indictment if and when it ever comes and say, hey, this seems like a political hit job by the last administration on this one. Even if this stuff is true, it's not that big a deal. Uh, Then I think there really is an optical problem. So he's being investigated, according to The New York Times reporting, it looks like for a possible FARA violation, the for, violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, meaning basically he was lobbying U.S. officials on behalf of Ukrainians allegedly and didn't disclose that to the Justice Department. We've talked a lot about FARA on the podcast before. You know, it's a serious thing, but it hasn't always been treated seriously, et cetera, et cetera. My question is, 
what is the chance, and maybe we don't know this yet, that this could balloon into something bigger than Farah? I mean, the context in which, of course, this is all happening is around a time that we know from previous reports that I've done and colleagues have done where, you know, Rudy's interacting with Ukrainians, some of whom are operating on behalf of the government of Russia, trying to get him to inject disinformation into our political stream during an election. I mean, which is just sort of like seems, I think probably will strike the average person as like a qualitatively more serious thing than not filing lobbying paperwork, which is serious as well. Let's be clear, because of what, you know, that paperwork is meant to do is to disclose that you're being an activist on behalf of a foreign government. So what are the chances this thing goes beyond Farah? Or do we think that what we're looking at here is basically like the discrete corners of an investigation? Like this is basically what Rudy has coming for him and probably not more. Anytime you are dealing with reckless individuals, foreign governments uh, who are interfering in our elections and very large sums of money the chances that other statutes get implicated become pretty high. And those can include, you know, false statements matters. I would be surprised if there aren't fraud issues kicking around, because here's what you don't do. You don't take a lot of money from a foreign oligarch to lobby U.S. officials while you're representing the president and then always tell the truth about it. And so I I just think there's a lot of landmines here that uh, you we will not know until if and when an indictment happens what the specific allegations are, but uh Farah is maybe the thin edge of the wedge here. All right, uh hard as it is to leave Rudy the gift that keeps on giving, apparently. Um, we need to talk about the the extremely serious and troubling uh, situation with COVID in India, which has kind of, I guess, now become the, the, the global hotspot, if we want to think about it that way. Uh, India reported on Saturday th- roughly 350,000 new cases of COVID, which was the fourth day in a row that they had set a world record for daily infections. Um, There are harrowing accounts coming out of hospitals completely full, people dying in the streets, mass cremations, you know, 10, 20, 30 bodies at a time. This, This looks a lot like the kind of scenes of just human suffering and pandemonium that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic and arguably on an even bigger scale. And it raises all kinds of interesting questions, which you can talk about, like, you know, you know, Susan, why some of this is happening now, I mean, there there was a very strict national lockdown in India last year, but health protocols subsequently have not been followed in a lot of parts of the country. There was a huge religious gathering. There have been political rallies, all things that scientists have pointed to and said, you know, these are potential kind of super spreading events. Vaccines are arguably not being rolled out fast enough. Uh, obviously, in India, you have a developing country in which transportation between parts of the country in major cities is not always reliable. So all of these factors are combining. But maybe let's start with practically speaking, what can the U.S. do right now to help alleviate this situation? And why is it in our, in our interest to help India? Yeah, so I think this is one of those cases in which it's it's a really um, 
sort of unfortunate foreign policy diplomacy issue because it's something that actually messages quite simply and looks quite simple on the surface. And the reality is really, really complicated. And so, you know, what we're seeing is is obviously a, a massive spread happening in India. You know, this is what ex- unchecked exponential growth looks like. That's being driven by inadequate public health measures. It's being dr- driven by the emergence of variants, right? There's a lot of pieces in that. Layered on top of it is the complete collapse of the public health system. And I think this is really the part that, look, there, there are people on Twitter sort of asking, does anyone know where oxygen tanks and regulators are? I mean, sort of, we're seeing the total collapse and bottoming out of a system. And uh, the messaging around sort of what the United States uh, should be doing um, has been sort of collapsed into this pretty simplistic sort of should the United States share vaccines and its raw materials, right? We're sitting on a large stockpile. Um, these are all, it's actually a really layered and, and complicated question. And, and I think um, in, in light of this, you know, really horrifying humanitarian crisis, you know, th- there's this urge to act. And we're seeing, I think the first time the administration has made a real kind of misstep in failing to recognize how quickly the United States was going to move from vaccine scarcity to vaccine glut, you know, how quickly uh, sort of our domestic conditions and their ability, what it would look like whenever they were making these choices to support other countries that were potentially in crisis, how quickly that would happen. Um, on, on a practical level, you know, I, I think sort of we should almost set aside the vaccine question as a third bucket. Um, sort of immediately, I think really it's about, um, and, and the United States has, has announced an intention to sort of do more fulsome support, um, you know, supporting kind of the the public health response, right? We've got lots of tests, masks, right? Providing high quality sort of PPE, uh, you know, just helping them kind of at a systemic level get the spread under control to support their actual public, sort of the the hospital infrastructure, right? That's the most acute thing that's happening is they aren't able to take care of critically ill patients. And right, whenever we talked about, you know, flatten the curve, this this was all about avoiding this moment, avoiding the moment in which the number of cases were going to overwhelm sort of capacity and and therefore fatalities were going to increase, right? Sort of this this terrible situation. Um, Those are things that we can and should be doing. And I, I think we probably should have done more quickly and a little bit, I think we're seeing the administration kind of scrambled to catch up on that, you know, for for a number of different reasons. Then the second question about sort of vaccine doses, to me, and and obviously I'm not a, you know, an epidemiologist, I'm not a doctor, um, this seems like actually a pretty complicated question, um, sort of who and under what conditions we should share vaccines with and um, uh, the interest among domestic governments in receiving those vaccines, and even more on an even more complex level, to what extent we should be sharing the raw materials for vaccines. Um, Bill Gates got in a lot of trouble sort of this past week for essentially saying, look, there's all this focus on on raw materials. I'm not confident that there are the facilities to handle these materials safely and sort of manufacture vaccines. And and that got a lot of sort of pushback. And so um, it's this enormously complex uh, sort of crisis that's emerging. And I think a little bit we've seen sort of the, the, the U.S. government be kind of behind the eight ball. Um, our colleague Tom Wright has a really interesting and I, I think thoughtful take on this in, uh, in the Atlantic today, um, you know, sort of about this being the first real test of pandemic diplomacy. Biden saying he was going to lead us out from, you know, this America first nationalistic approach back into being a global leader and, and how complicated that really is in practice. 
Yeah, Tammy, talk a little about that foreign policy and diplomacy mentioned too, right? Because it seems like this is like, oh, perfect opportunity for us to prove why it's important for us to help the outbreak from spreading in, in other countries. And it seems like it should be just like a layup, but it's not. <laughs> Well, I right. It's it's not for all the reasons that Susan cited about the complexity of figuring out how much you can afford to give away, uh, how much of what you can afford to give away. It's complex because these are private companies, you know, manufacturing vaccines with proprietary technologies, and so are you going to override their intellectual property rights? You know, so it intersects with a lot of other important policy interests, both domestic and, and foreign policy. But it also, sh on the surface, should look like a layup to help India for geopolitical reasons, because the Biden administration is seeking to find ways to compete effectively with China on the global stage. India is a really important part of that strategy because of its size and its economic connections with East Asia and Southeast Asia because it is a fellow democracy, although, you know, one that is very populist and very nationalist and, and so challenges our sense of democracy, you know, as a values system that uh, we can contrast with the Chinese. But you, you don't want to see a huge, you know, democracy of over a billion people collapse into essentially a failed state. And you want India's help on a whole host of other problems. And so you want to be responsive here. I think those are the basics, the basics of the response. But, you know, what exactly the United States can do, I think there are domestic politics here also. Yes, there are people in the Biden-Harris administration, like, you know, the new global coronavirus coordinator, Gail Smith, like uh, the incoming USAID director, Samantha Power, who are arguing strongly that the United States needs to lead a global effort to get vaccines to countries around the world whose healthcare systems simply don't have even the degree of resilience that ours has, and ours was strained but not all the way to the breaking point. These scenes of people gasping for oxygen, families paying black market rates for oxygen tanks, hospitals refusing to take in new patients, these are scenes repeated in lots of lots of countries around the world. India, you know, is not alone in this. It's just the largest and most prominent example. But I think that for a lot of Americans, their immediate response would be, why are we sending vaccines abroad when we're still hurting at home? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, I just want to say there is an answer to that question, and that is and it's an important answer, and that is we are fast reaching the point where we cannot distribute vaccine to enough people who want it. And by the way, let's call things by their name. Those people who don't want the vaccine are Republicans. And the states that uh, have too few people who want the vaccine, if you look at the rankings of states in terms of how much vaccine they've been able to distribute. States like West Virginia were way ahead early because they had this really good distribution system, but then they ran out of people to give it to. And West Virginia has just plummeted. It's now behind the District of Columbia in total vaccine percentage distributed. As you reach the point where you may still have a lot of people who haven't been vaccinated, but you don't have that many, the percentage of those people who want to be keeps going down. The argument for using that surplus vaccine, uh, sending it overseas to places that desperately need it when it's going to go to waste here or the, the uptake uh, rates become much slower becomes, in my judgment, overpoweringly good. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, and if you're just looking at this purely from a political point of view, as you know, as the White House might, in some respects, the people who aren't taking the vaccine are never going to be for you, no matter what you do with the damn vaccine, right? The administration would be perfectly you know, well advised to, frankly, put pictures of what's going on in India and say, like, to Americans who don't want the vaccine, is this what you want instead? Right. I mean, and if you're not really going to wake up, then, you know, frankly, shut the fuck up if we give the vaccine to a bunch of people in <laughs> India where we don't want variants to incubate and then come back over here and then screw all of us who did get the vaccine. Right. The policy should be and they should just articulate it. We will give vaccine to Americans first. But if you don't want it, we are going to send it to Mumbai. Right. Right. And that this and, and frame it as a security matter, not just a, you know, touchy feely diplomacy matter. Right? I mean, it's first and foremost a security issue, in my opinion. Yeah, look, I think we can we can say that that is the rational policy path. But I think the, the domestic political messaging is really tricky. I agree with that. And I think even sort of assuming that we need to place a domestic rationale that um, that the Biden administration, right, we aren't even assuming that the Biden administration can come back can sort of come forward and say, this is the right thing to do because of upwards of 2000 people every single day are dying. And like, this is a catastrophe. And we just have a moral imperative, right? Maybe, maybe like the, the, the rainbows and unicorn Obama administration might have tried that stuff. But the Biden administration <laughs> has to come in and say, now we understand it's all about America, but we're only right They're They're casting sort of their foreign policy in this idea of what aids and benefits the United States in like a very, um, I don't know, sort of uh, like blunt way that I, I think itself sort of demonstrates a pretty interesting shift in sort of what's occurred between uh, the end of the Obama administration and, and the dawn of the Biden administration. 
Yeah. I, I, I just keep coming back to, and we'll, we'll wrap up here, but like, I feel like the argument that is not being forcefully made for people who are resisting the vaccine and putting aside people who are resisting it purely out of just political spite and are being quite frankly performative, who let's face it, probably will go get the damn vaccine like at their drugstore. Um, yeah, they just won't tell anyone. They just won't tell anyone, right? They want the ability to say like, well, I'm not, you know, not in my arm. But, you know, it, the argument is, is that... You know, it's this is like what Ron Johnson was going on about the other day. Like, well, if you've got it, what does it matter if I've got it? And it, it, it seems like it's never been articulated that no, 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 no. Like, it's not just about having herd immunity and we have a bubble around us. It's about stopping the evolution of the virus and mutating and creating new versions of itself, right, that can overcome these vaccines. And I just am still kind of struggling with, like, why is that message not being more clearly communicated? It is, but it's not coming across enough that, like... This isn't just about giving everybody a shot and then we can go back to eating in bars again. It's about trying to blunt the next wave of this thing that could happen if there are enough people able to be infected. But isn't the answer to that that none of this is really about vaccine hesitancy? This is just outright COVID denialism. And somehow this idea that this thing is not really happening and is not really yeah. serious has so taken root that all of these other things are just mani- like they're just manifestations of that root thing. And so like, right, if you try and meet Ron Johnson and take his arguments seriously, is this, this is really about vaccine safety or individual, like, you've already lost, you're just, yeah. you've already accepted what is just a plainly false and absurd premise. And so I think the even harder question is, how do you begin to address this sort of root denial? And, and is it worth how much energy should you spend there, right? How much success can you possibly have versus maybe other nudge policy things like, you know, the federal government supporting the idea that private companies should ask for vaccine status in order to access particular services, right? There are other ways to encourage people to get vaccinated. Um, you know, there's lots of vaccines, public schools being sort of one area that, that people are encouraged to get vaccines they might otherwise. And so, like, I, I think either you have to address the root cause or or acknowledge that it probably can't be addressed effectively and, and, and energy is better ex- sort of expended elsewhere. This just brings back to the question I ask myself every day of so many prominent people in politics and in our media ecosystem, which is, are you just trying to troll the libs or have you genuinely lost your goddamn mind? <laughs> Why not both? Maybe both. Por qué no los dos? All right. Let us talk about some tech wars here right now. This is a very interesting story that touches on themes that we've talked about before on the podcast. So people know the company Signal. You probably have Signal on your phone, uh, the encrypted messaging app. Another company you may know less about called Celebrite. Tammy, tell us what happened here in this very interesting feud between these two companies. Celebrite came out publicly indicating, although I think not exactly accurately, that they were able to hack Signal, which would, of course, would scare a lot of people who use Signal, yours truly included, (laughs) because we like to think of this as being a highly secure encrypted platform. Signal then turns around and apparently actually finds vulnerabilities in Celebrite, which was sort of a kind of like, I guess, maybe a hacking back or, you know, you try this against me, I'll do it against you. Signal is in the business of protecting private communications and evading government surveillance. Celebrite is arguably in the business of the opposite. It's a company that helps its software to governments to 
aid surveillance. Uh, I think they'd be quick to say lawful surveillance, but it's in the business of intruding on privacy. So what is going on in this feud between these two tech companies that clearly employ a lot of sophisticated people, but kind of at least seem to be on different sides of some battle lines here? Yeah. And uh, and at least in the case of these two companies, it's increasingly like a mano on mano, like it's almost a pride you know, yeah. matter at this point. So Celebrate is one of those Israeli digital forensics slash hacking companies. We've heard of these before. Mm-hmm. Uh, NSO group, mm-hmm. anybody? <laughs> Pegasus, anybody? Right, right. And these Israeli firms have marketed themselves to governments and to intelligence services and to law enforcement in countries around the world. They tend to be pretty nonchalant about whether they are selling their products to democratic governments or non-democratic governments. Although Celebrate has uh, sold a lot to police Um, including like local police in the U.S. and in other countries around the world, they have also dealt with a lot of authoritarian governments. And so it's perhaps not surprising that a company like Signal, whose whole brand is that it protects the user from these kinds of privacy intrusions, um, would see the business, the whole business model, the whole sector that Celebrate is part of as a threat So Celebrate, one of its marketing pitches was that, you know, it had this software that enabled police to break signal. Now, they they couldn't actually break signals encryption, supposedly, but they could get data about signal messages from the signal app on somebody's phone. And signal always challenged this claim by Celebrate. And now signals founder says he acquired the Celebrate software, quote, it fell off a truck in front of literally. me. <laughs> um, which, well, that's what he literally says. That's not what probably literally happened. No, no, but that is literally what he claims happened. Yes. Uh, it's very tongue-in-cheek, I think. And so he then produced an exploit. He said that this software doesn't even meet basic security standards. There are lots of ways to exploit it. And he produced an exploit that could not only prevent Celebrate from getting data, but could actually change the data on your phone before giving it to Celebrate, which throws into question not just whether Celebrate can actually get signal data, but it throws into question every bit of data that every police agency has ever gotten off of a cell phone using Celebrate. Like, oh, is it manipulated? And so it's very interesting, you know, to see there, uh, Gizmodo quotes one criminal defense lawyer who's, who has already filed a court challenge to the conviction of his client, largely based on Celebrate acquired data. And this defense lawyer says, you know, look, Celebrate's been around for a while, but police only used to use it for child porn and sometimes drug offenses. But now that this tool is so widespread, cops go to it right away. They just take the phone of anyone they arrest and look for incriminating evidence, no matter what kind of case it is. And they, so, you know, this is this whole mano a mano competition is definitely putting wind in the sails of not only criminal defense attorneys, but digital privacy advocates. But I also think that it is a really interesting window into what happens when these digital forensic tools become available, even to 
a law enforcement agency in the United States that is, you know, overseen and governed by the rule of law and overseen by the courts and yada, yada, yada. Once they have this tool, they want to use it in all kinds of ways that might be less targeted than it was initially acquired for. And that could have abusive potential. It's not like anyone stands up and says, I'm going to create a surveillance state, but it could have that effect over time. So I think this is a really revealing incident. I don't know who is ultimately going to win the encryption decryption software war, but it's very enlightening to see Signal push back. Yeah, so I think this is a a super interesting story. I have a, um, I think unsurprisingly, a little bit of a sort of a different take than than Tammy on it in that I agree with everything, you know, Tammy just said about, right, the sort of this complexity of how are we going to regulate this industry? I think it's sort of, it's best to think about it as kind of a spectrum, um, right? We would think of sort of NSO group as being on the less responsible end of the spectrum, celebrates kind of more in the middle. And then um, there are uh, also companies that essentially only work with kind of the United States government and Five Eyes, which um, again, there are people who uh, believe that itself is problematic, but sort of it's on the the sort of the the most cautious part of the spectrum. Um, And so look, Tammy's right that whenever like the one way to think about these companies is um, whenever you provide these tools to governments, they can also be used for abusive purposes. And so the question is sort of how do you ensure that the benefits of the service you provide are used without the abuse? Um, That's also a question you might turn around and ask companies like Signal, where you say, look, you provide a really important uh, benefit, right? Uh, robust encryption, allowing people, including dissidents to, uh, you know, and ordinary people to communicate with one another in a way that is uh, is secure. Um, you also facilitate really serious criminal conduct um, and make it really, really hard for law enforcement to perform um, some of the, the sort of law enforcement functions that we all agree um, are largely beneficial. And so, um, you know, this sort of this fight that's been going on for a long time, this is the next uh, iteration of that. Um, One, uh, you know, we mentioned this sort of, uh, you know, uh, Marlon Spike says he got it because it fell off a truck. He says in an unbelievable coincidence, he's right, it is an unbelievable coincidence (laughs) in the sense that I and nobody else believe it for a single second, but that's actually what happened, right? He somehow obtained this software. Um, And what this sort of blog post is, is it's kind of a turnabout is fair play, but it's casting, it's making really broad really pretty unsupported claims about the efficacy and sort of the vulnerabilities. They're saying, hey, look, we found this these exploits, um, so a claim that I think is, rel- or, or these vulnerabilities, a claim that's relatively well supported. And then it takes a pretty big leap to say, and, oh, by these way, these exploits could be, uh, you know, used for all the following purposes in ways that undermine anything that Celebrate has ever produced. And so essentially their claim is these are vulnerabilities that could be used to compromise an individual's phone in such a way as to, in the future, after the phone has been was compromised and it's been seized by law enforcement, to produce false information. Um, so under sort of following the logic here, it's that somebody's phone is compromised and in such a way so as to produce relevant evidence later when law enforcement ultimately sort of searches that phone. And so what what we really have here is a company that is positing like a very theoretical possibility and then saying, yeah, and this undermines everything, right? You, you sort of can't use it. And the intention here is really to harm 
um, sort of celebrates market share and their ability because it, now if law enforcement knows, hey, this has opened us up to uh, criminal defense attorneys sort of challenging everywhere we go, something we're already seeing defense attorneys making filings in, in a number of cases sort of claiming, well, this is a reason to throw all of this stuff out. Um, that makes law enforcement less likely to use these products in the future because they, they don't want to have to go through this hassle. In reality, though, um, that this would be really significant if the way evidence in criminal trials worked or criminal trials generally worked where um, police found a single piece of evidence on the phone. That was the dispositive, right? It's like a, it's like an episode of a TV show. It's the smoking gun. They find it on the phone. They then take it into court. They say, look, we caught the person with this and we're prosecuting and charging them right on this basis. Um, yeah, then like you have a real problem. This is a really old tactic from defense attorneys sort of saying, especially in the child exploitation space, somebody else put this on my client's computer. Those aren't my drugs. I have no idea how it got there. And you have to prove that I had it. Um, yeah, they have to, like, this is, this is the, the, the U.S. sort of system of justice. And in these cases, uh, it's not as if, well, let's sort of use the child exploitation context, um, because that tends to be kind of the image-based offense. You're saying, well, you had this thing and we're prosecuting on that basis. There's lots of other supporting evidence. And so that's why I think most courts are going to look at this and kind of say, yeah, yeah, like, you know, theoretically, there's a question here, but there's no, there's actually no reason to sort of undermine it. And so, you know, what, what we're really seeing here is I, I think sort of, um, I think Tammy's right to this, this almost kind of machismo driven, like you came after me, so I'm going to come after you sort of like war to, to shape the sort of public discourse around it. Um, I'm way, way more skeptical of the idea that this actually, one, is going to make it less, anybody less likely to use Celebrate in practice, change that company's sort of procedures or do anything more than, um, you know, there's going to be a sort of a small spattering or a large spattering of sort of defense attorneys trying to use this opportunistically. I think almost, if not 100% of those are going to be pretty quickly swatted down by the courts. Um, and then we'll kind of be right back where we started. So unless there's something big that I'm missing about sort of the, what they're technically describing here, I'm skeptical. It's as significant as Signal is trying to sort of claim it is. Hmm. Ben. I will just add that this story is the exact flip side of the coin of the story we talked about a few weeks ago involving the Australian company that broke the iPhone on behalf of the San Bernardino iPhone. These tools, you know, unless you are a civil libertarian hardliner or a government uh, intelligence agency, these tools are pretty morally neutral. They all have security uses. They all have security problems. And, you know, the Corellium Azithmuth uh, we look at and we say, wow, that was a clever way around the going dark problem. And with when Selbright goes after Signal, we say, ooh, that presents real privacy problems. But it's exactly the same thing. And the real question is, how much do you trust the companies in question? And how sympathetic are you to the underlying uses of the products designed to break them? Yeah, well, and I would just say that the reason that we have this uh, machismo face-off and the reason that you're faced with the question of how much do you trust these companies that, you know, there are new ones every day, it's because we have no regimes to govern the way they do business. We have no transparency. We have no oversight. These are claims and counterclaims within the industry. 
And, you know, Israel has almost no export controls on this stuff. And to me, it just emphasizes how crucial it is that democratic governments come up with a way of controlling the marketing of this kind of technology. Right. But the flip side of that is that when somebody tries to do that, which is Jim Comey coming to the Brookings Institution and say, hey, guys, I got a real problem. You know, I'm getting all these phones that my people can't get into, and some of them involve really horrible stuff. Then uh, there's the whole you're going to break the Internet crowd. And so you don't like sell bright. You don't like, you know, Apple doesn't like Azithmuth or however you pronounce it. And you don't like the policy solution. I don't mean you, but like we collectively don't like any of the options we've got. Yeah, so look, I I think that's right. So just sort of to zoom up at a policy level, right? There there are only really three paths here. Um, one is that we have some sort of formalized lawful access mechanism, right? The the dreaded backdoor. The alternative is that we have lawful hacking, um, and we allow the government to attempt to exploit these flaws either by purchasing from the government, which is always what was going to happen, um, or producing these tools organically, something that um, requires a, an immense investment of taxpayer dollars, um, or door three that we accept the status quo. Uh, And so I think one of the challenges of this sort of debate is that really um, sort of one side is arguing for accept the status quo, that the benefits of sort of not going down, you know, not doing anything either sort of for lawful hacking or formalized lawful access, the the benefits outweigh the harms. We should just leave this alone and and we accept the status quo. It's it's not, you aren't really, I think, able to say that. And so instead what happens is you're in this constantly shifting world in which, you know, it's about, you know, well, don't have, uh, you know, backdoors to encryption, but also don't rely on these companies, but also, and so I think what we're really seeing is our refusal to pick a policy path and answer that question has created a situation in which we're unable to regulate the space. For whenever we look at countries like Germany, that is really, they developed an entire agency essentially designed for hacking. They're making the investment on a government basis. They're trying to sort of regulate it. Maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, but they've chosen that path and then can build a structure on top of this. Our sort of refusal or inability to make some of those hard choices mean that we're a little bit in the worst of all worlds right now where we do have maybe the technology is morally neutral, but the companies are certainly not morally neutral. And, you know, it, it's it's uh, certainly not a situation anyone, I, I, you know, including sort of representatives of, of the FBI you know, eight years ago, I would say, wouldn't look at this and think, oh, yeah, like this is a good place where this this is the outcome everybody can get behind. Well said. Very wise. All right. Let us go on to object lessons. Um, Ben, why don't you start us off? I have two object lessons. Two? Yes, because uh, I know that the average listener of rational security right now is thinking, what is all that noise going on in the background whenever Ben or Tammy speaks? So I just want to answer that question with an object lesson. The object lesson is a very large truck that pulled up in front of our house with a container full of garbage, <laughs> uh, like a, a like a like the best Amazon delivery. Yeah, no, you know? and I don't, I don't mean like a small <laughs> container. I mean like container ship size <laughs> container, and parked in front of our house and dumped the container in front of our house. Is this garbage or construction debris? 
construction debris. Yeah. And then uh, apparently realizing that we had not ordered an entire container <laughs> full of construction debris, turned around and picked it up again. Oh, and that drove was nice. Off. So we have had, while we were recording Rational Security, a giant container of construction debris delivered and removed from in front of the our part of the virtual jungle studio. I think you should have been allowed the chance to at least go out and see if there was anything in it that you might want. <laughs> you know, like that, that concrete block, that old brick. I really, I want some that. Some rebar, some drywall. <laughs> I, I yield. I right. yield my opportunity to root through the trash. Now for your second object. On a more serious note, Lawfare yesterday posted on its website a very bittersweet job announcement, which is that we are hiring a new managing editor to replace uh, Quinta Jurassic, frequent guest visitor on Rational Security, who is stepping down as managing editor to join the Brookings Institution, where she will continue to be a regular Lawfare contributor, but will not be editing the site anymore. I, I noticed that you gave all the listeners a heart attack that Quinta had left and was gone. And then you gave them the good news that actually she's not gone. Yes, this is a great opportunity for Quinta. We are extremely happy for Quinta. It is even good for Lawfare in that Quinta will have more time to write. And uh, I suspect she may be coming on rational security a fair bit more. But... Uh, she will not be the managing editor of Lawfare, which means that we need a new managing editor. And the question that I pose to all listeners of Rational Security is, is that managing editor going to be you? <laughs> there are times in all of our lives where we have to ask ourselves, am I the sort of person that would be the managing <laughs> editor of Lawfare? Or am I just not the sort of person who would be the managing editor of Lawfare? This is one of those times. And uh, if when confronted with that question, dear listener, you respond, why, yes, I think I am. Go to Lawfare and click on the little ad for the job announcement, the little post, uh, the job announcement and get in touch. And you have to be a rational security listener to be managing editor. It's a requirement. Yeah, there's going to be a content quiz. Yeah. Exactly. You have to prove how long. If you don't know which band played three weeks ago's uh, don't even uh, Sophia Yan playing, like, you're out. You're out. You're done. You're over. Disqualified. Um, um, all right, I'll do my object. Uh, next, I have another TV show for people. This one is not as, uh, is not old. It's, it's relatively new. It just came out last year, but I just finished watching it. Uh, it's called Tehran. Do you guys know about Tehran? Have you heard of this? Who needs the show? We have real life. Yeah, sure do. Like I have like my spectrum of you guys know, like, you know, my feelings about Homeland and then, you know, and at the other end of the spectrum of like the best ever show uh, on intelligence would be like the Bureau. And this is somewhere between the two in terms of like, it's very good leaning towards the Bureau, but it's a little bit more Homeland-ish in its plot. But it follows um, a woman who is a Mossad agent and hacker 
uh, who gets inserted into Tehran for what is supposed to be uh, a very brief but high stakes operation that goes terribly wrong uh, and all kinds of chaos ensues. It's super fun. It's really good energy. It's just a totally different perspective, too. Like she's a hacker. She's an agent. But what's also really interesting is that she is she is Israeli. Her parents, though, are Iranian. Uh, they are they are Jews who left Iran and settled in Israel. So she kind of has this like duality, right? I mean, she uh, everyone thinks she's Iranian, which makes her a perfect agent. But like her family is kind of torn between two worlds. And it's just super cool the way they play with that. And as with all these shows, I'm looking around and I'm like, this is awesome B-roll footage because it looks like you filmed it in Iran, which you certainly did not because this is an Israeli television show, um, which you can find on Apple TV. But nevertheless, it's super great visuals. Um, it also has an actor um, named Sean Taub, who people remember from Homeland, who I think is awesome. And some other good people who were in the bureau as well as uh, small bits. So, do you think there's out, like an Israeli intelligence lawyer watching this, staring at her screen, being like, "You're not allowed to do that," and categorizing <laughs> all the like factual errors? Probably, probably. Mm-hmm. I gotta make say, a show though, about like, that lady. That's where the really interesting right? stuff is. The fact checker. <laughs> the fact checker. Uh, yes, I. I mean, you know, it's it's it, again a little more towards the homeland side. Like she's a hacker, but can also like you know break people's face. I'm like, okay, maybe Massage Jane's like, you know, people to be commando hackers too. I don't know. She's a badass. That part I, I dig a lot. By the way, the uh, actress's name uh, is Niv Sultan, who I've never seen before anywhere. But uh, she plays, and her character's name, by the way, is Tamar. Dun, dun, dun. Not Tamara, but Tamar. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so it's good. Tehran, check it out. Susan, your object. I have an object lesson, and that's it's also the background noise in my house. Do you guys oh. hear? That? Do you hear the background noise? Right, not really. No, that's right. You <gasps> hear nothing. Oh. Why? Because my children are back in school. Oh. And so last week is the first week that I have been alone in my home since last March, ladies and gentlemen. So right now I am recording rational security. No one is screaming. Nobody is literally laying outside the door, jamming their fingers underneath just howling in anger that I would dare to lock a door against them. I thought that was your husband that did that. And it's, yeah, exactly. It's the whole, the whole group of them. Um, So this is, you know, once again, recording rational security as uh, the good Lord intended and being left alone. And it's, it is the most blessed object lesson I could possibly offer any of you. And it's just quiet. Home alone and loving it. Ah, take it's a kind moment. of blissful sounding. That's great. It is lovely. It is lovely. I was hearing nothing either. That's why I'm so at peace. Ah, it's good. It's a very peaceful note on which to it's end. Very zen. Very good. We're going to go out on that bliss. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can um, definitely get the garbage truck outside of Ben's house and Ben and Tammy's house stuff that was in there you can find that on lawfare trash shop yep 
some good merch. Used. It's all used. Store. Roughly used, to be very clear. You can hire Ben Wittes to come and throw trash on the lawn of your enemies as <laughs> yes. long as they're located within 30 miles of the That's DC right. metropolitan area. actual promotion. Where <laughs> you get that with your lawfare membership now. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. <clears throat> you can find us on Facebook, still on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps us out and other people to find the show too. So please push that share button on your podcast app of choice and let others know about rational security. Our audio engineer this week is Ian Enright from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Rudy Giuliani and his version of the 80s glam metal classic Cherry Pie. Oh. <laughs> Do you know why? I don't get it. Who sang Cherry Pie? Oh! Warren, right. baby! Yeah, all right, all right. I was like going through the lyrics. I was like, I don't, what? Yeah. yeah. It's good. It's good. Sophia Yan sang Cherry Pie by Warren. Yeah, she wrote it. She actually wrote it. She was also their hairstylist. Her hair is much better. Those guys probably don't even have their hair anymore, but God bless. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 